uh, we got some tracks to make because we're uh, finishing a series. So what you're going to want to do is you want to grab that Bible or device, whatever it is you have, and you want to go to Revelation. You want to go to the very last book in your Bible, Revelation. Open that up in your laps, and then I want you to reach into your program. There's a note page. You're going to want to take some notes today. You're like, I'm not a note taker. You're going to want to take some notes today. I do think that today, okay? So we're going to make some tracks today. There's a lot we're going to cover because this series is coming to an end. This series has been a fun series. It's called Long Story Short. And simply in this series, we've been looking at the long story short of the Bible. We've been looking at it in six acts. And so if you've been here, you know that we've already looked at acts one through five. Uh, We've looked at creation, the whole idea of creation and God creating. We looked at the curse, what happened. We looked at covenant, trying to make sense of the rest of the Old Testament. Uh, Then we looked at the cross on Easter, and some of you were here for that, and so glad you were. And then we looked last week at the church. Here's why we're doing this, okay? We're doing this series for a reason, and this is going to set us up for where we're going. We're doing this for a reason, and we believe here, I believe personally, that the Bible is the true story of where we came from, where we're going, and how to make sense out of life. But whatever you believe, okay, you, you might be here like, I'm not a Bible believer. I'm not a Christian. I'm glad you're here, okay? You might be here like, I'm not sure if I buy this stuff. I'm glad you're here. Whatever you believe, here's what I do know. I guarantee you every last one of us in this room has a long story short. All of us do. Uh, whether you're a Christian, a churchgoer, a Bible believer, it doesn't matter. You have a long story short. I have a long story short. Our long story short is simply how we make sense out of our life. We all believe we came from something. We all believe we're going to something, and that's how we make sense out of our life. That's how we determine what we value. That's how we determine what meaning is. That's how we determine what we live for. It's our long story short. We're looking at the long story short of the Bible, and here's why we're doing that. Because we believe that not only is the Bible the true story of God, mankind, and the history of the world and where we're going, but we believe, this is the important part that I want you to hear me say. You, you expected me to say that. We believe the Bible is a better story. And some of you are here like, I'm not a Christian, I'm not a Christ follower, and, but, but here's the deal. If the truth be known, you're rejecting a story you really don't know. And so that's why we're doing Long Story Short. Because we say, hey, well, here's the long story short. At least if you're going to reject it, reject the story you know. Reject the the long story short of the Bible as it's understood, okay? Uh, For a lot of you, you grew up in church, and so you have bits and pieces of the Bible. You can't figure out how it fits together. And so uh, we're doing this series so that we almost give you the picture on the puzzle box. So when you get these pieces to the puzzle, you say, oh, that's how it connects together. This series called Long Story Short helps me understand some things. Think about this. The long story short of the Bible helps me understand why it is that I and you appreciate and love good and beautiful things. Just think about this for a minute. We love things that are beautiful. We love things that are good. There's nothing quite like standing out underneath of a starlit sky and and, and standing in awe of creation. There's nothing like being in the middle of the Rockies and and being wowed by the majesty of the mountains. There's nothing like being in the middle of a forest and hearing the rushing waters of a river going through. There's nothing like seeing a newborn coming into the world. There are really, really good things that we get shades of and we have an appetite for it. We like good things. We enjoy beautiful things. We enjoy doing things that fit together. We like that when it happens. And the long story short of the Bible helps me understand why. Because we were created for that. We were created. The very first act is a God who creates and what he creates is good. 
And when he created, he evaluated, and he said, it's good. He created man. He said, it's very good. I want you to enjoy, take care of, and, and I want you to live in the adventure of what's good and what's beautiful. But you don't have to read the story long, and you don't even have to believe that story to look around at our story and say, something's wrong. Something went wrong. Because as you look around, you're like, wow, it doesn't take long to see in the human story where cruelty and injustice and selfishness begin to take over, where all of a sudden something began to creep in that leads to bombings in Sri Lanka, that leads to shootings in synagogues. And you look around and you're like, wow, something's wrong. But here's what we said. And and, and if we're honest, and let's just be honest, we're going to be better that way. The something that's wrong, we know this intuitively, isn't just out there. But we know intuitively it's in here. We know there's something wrong. There's something broke. There's something off. We know there's, it's, it's the thing, right? I'm not pointing fingers. Don't raise your hand. But it's the thing that whatever's wrong in here is the very thing that causes us to go from worshiping God one hour and jumping on Route 76 with road rage the next. I'm not pointing fingers, right? But you know who you are, right? Like, like we know there's something wrong. There's selfishness inside of us. We know there's anger inside of us. We know that something's off. And so the long story short of the Bible is the thing that helps me understand why there's something wrong, that in the garden creation turned its back on the creator. It helps me understand the solution that the rest of the Old Testament is about this God who chases after us and he literally chases us clear to the cross. Why? Because at the cross, Jesus fixes what's broken and he repairs what's ruined. And it led us to last week when we said Jesus died, was buried, rose again. That's Easter. And he said, I'm going to build my church. And then he left. And that's the part of the story we find ourselves in right now. And here's what we said. This is the statement we said last week. And I guess where we're going today. What was rooted in creation was ruined at the curse, redeemed at the cross, and then restored through his church. That now his church, this is key to where we're going today, is a group of called out ones, those who've said yes to Jesus and were called out to reflect his glory and multiply his goodness. That's what the church does. And so when you read the Bible, I want your Bible to make sense to you. The book of Acts describes the story of the church. And then in the second part of your Bible, the New Testament, from the book of Romans, stay with me on this, clear to Revelation 4, are letters or correspondence to churches or to leaders in the church. That's how to make sense of your Bible. But when you get to the book of Revelation, all of a sudden you get to the last act of the drama. Like the book of Revelation tells us where this whole thing's going. Everybody look here a second. Because even if you don't believe the Bible, you believe this whole thing's going somewhere. Like like you believe something about where it's going. Even if you're like, hey, we die, it's over. That's gonna somehow impact how you live today. And so the book of Revelation gives us the last act. Now here's what I know. Some of you have read the book of Revelation. Can we just say this? That reading the book of Revelation can seem like reading a modern day science fiction movie. Can we just say that, right? Like it can be confusing. How many of you are science fiction people? You love science fiction? Anybody in the room? Yeah, a couple of you, not many, right? I hate it. I'm just gonna tell you that, okay? Like, like some of the young ones on staff, they love Star Wars. Any Star Wars fans in here? Right? Okay, more of you. You didn't raise your hand before, okay? That's science fiction if you didn't know, okay? It's not real, okay? Just saying, okay? Just clear that up. But, but, but here's the deal. I watch that stuff. I don't know. It's my age. I don't know what it is. I watch that stuff, and I watch it with my boys, and, and I'm like, who's the good guys? 
Who's the bad guys? What are those? I don't understand any of it. Sometimes the book of Revelation can be that way. You read it and you're like, I don't know what's going on. Who's the good guys? Who's the bad guys? What do those things mean, right? So I want to tell you something that will help the book of Revelation begin to make sense. And then we're going to take a journey that you've got to go with me. You've got to do the hard work and go with me for the next 30 minutes or so. If you want to understand the book of Revelation, this, this kind of book that kind of weirds us out, the very first thing you've got to understand is that the author of the book and the main character of the book is Jesus. It's all about Jesus, the book of Revelation, if you don't get that it's about Jesus, it can get funky on you real quick. It can get weird. You can all of a sudden get off track. You can begin to think, oh, I must, I, I, maybe I should chart the book of Revelation. He didn't write this book so that we would chart it, so that we'd be able to explain every little detail of it. He wrote this book so that we would find Jesus, see Jesus, worship Jesus, obey Jesus, love Jesus, trust Jesus. That's why he wrote this. So you have your Bibles open to Revelation, and I'm so excited to share this with you today because you don't hear many sermons nowadays in, in the book of Revelation. I'm gonna preach one on the whole book. So here we go, ready? Revelation one, you got your Bibles open there? Class participation, say yes. yes. Yeah, okay, I'm gonna ask you to talk back to me today, okay? I'm losing my voice as we speak, so you gotta talk with me, okay? Is that a deal? Say yes. yes. I love it, here we go. Revelation one, 19, helps you make sense of the book of Revelation. Look at it with me. Right therefore. What you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. Everybody look here. That is an outline to the book of Revelation. Verse 19 is an outline to the whole rest of the book. So if you want to know how is the book of Revelation broken out, there it is, verse 19. In, in verses 1 through 18 of chapter 1, the guy who's writing this, his name is John, he writes down what you have seen. So those are things that have, he's seen. In chapters 2 and 3, he writes down what is now. So he's writing to churches, to real churches, about real situations. When you get to chapter four, this is so key. He begins to write down what will take place later. From chapter four, clear to chapter 22 of the book of Revelation is what's coming. It's the next act of the long story short of the Bible. That is so key because knowing, listen close, Knowing the end of the story changes the way I watch what's happening right now. It changes the way I live in what's happening right now. When I know the end of the story, it changes the way I see what's going on right now. I can tell you're not with me, so let me explain what I mean. My wife, her name is Jennifer. Her and I, uh, we're empty nesters now, and occasionally we have a night where we're free. And so when we're free, uh, we're like, hey, let's watch something on TV. And there's not a ton on TV, right? I mean, you're, you kind of track around the channels. not a ton on TV. So here's what we've decided to do. We've decided to go back and watch old episodes of this show called Amazing Race. Raise your hand if you've ever heard of it. Amazing Race. Yeah, some of you in the room, right? It's worth going back to watch. So we're watching these old episodes. So when we get a free night, we watch a, an old episode. That's these couples, these people, they, what, what they do is they race around the world and they get these clues and they take these challenges and they try to beat these other couples to win a million dollars. If you've ever watched it, I don't know if it's my competitive spirit or whatever it is, but you can kind of get into that, right? I mean, it's like you find yourself like rooting for certain couples and I'm gonna just in full disclosure, you find yourself rooting against certain couples, right? 
And like my wife and I are sitting there like, oh man, you, like I, I, I'm watching this with her and, and I felt myself like all day you have this job and there's all this going on and you're with people. And I felt myself watching this show and I'm like all tensed up. I'm like, are they gonna win? Are they gonna lose? Are they gonna make it? And I'm like, this is crazy. And my wife's like, I can't believe this is in the way we're getting all tensed up. And so I have a confession to make, okay? Everybody look here. Some of you know my wife. I need your word. You will not tell my wife and I hope she's not listening, right? Shake your head. You won't tell my wife, right? Shake your head. Won't tell my wife, right? Right? Can I hear you say yes out loud? Okay, I'm gonna trust you. You won't tell my wife because she doesn't know what I'm getting ready to tell you, okay? But I went on, we're watching this episode and I went online to see who won. <laughs> I'm like, I can't take this anymore, right? So the other night we're watching, she doesn't know this, right? I hope she's not watching somebody distract her, right? So the other night we're watching this and it got really, really intense. And we're like, she's like, Dan, I don't think they're gonna win. I think these people are like, I'm like, sweetheart, relax, it's gonna be okay. She's like, how can you be so calm? I said, I don't know. I just kind of got this gut feeling. <laughs> At the end of the show, the couple we were in for got to the end before the other couple. She's like, they did it. How did you know? I said, I don't know. Just trust me, sweetheart. <laughs> don't you tell her. Because when you know the end of the story, it changes the way you navigate the story. You see, the book of Revelation is all about that, which leads us to understanding what happens in the book of Revelation Because the book of Revelation involves all the acts of the long story short up till now. After the seven letters to the churches in chapters two and three, look at chapter four, verse one. I want to show you something. The very next thing, the next event is described. After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said this, come up here. If you want to read the book of Revelation, it's like a newscast in heaven, a newscast on earth. That's how you read it. Sometimes we're up here, sometimes we're here. And he says, come up here, and I will show you what's about to take place after this. What's going on here? I'm going to put some things on the screen that's going to help you out. But I personally think this is describing an event, the next event in God's story. It's an event, if you want a word for it, called the rapture. I think this is an event called the rapture where literally Jesus comes and he calls out his church. In fact, I think what is described here is what you find described in a book called First Thessalonians, say that three times fast, First Thessalonians chapter four. Look at this. Brothers and sisters, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, those who've died, so that you don't grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died, rose again. We believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. Look at what it says next. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, the voice of the archangel. This is gonna be such a cool scene. The trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, We who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we'll be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other, one another, with these words. Write this down. This is describing the church. And all it's describing is this. Those who are called out, that's what church means, are now caught up. We talked about this last week. The church is a group of people that are called out to reflect God's glory. They're called out to multiply his goodness. This is describing the scene of the church being caught up and now the church is in the throne room of God. 
What John is doing here, he's trying to explain what's unexplainable. He's trying to describe what's almost indescribable. He's explaining the church now in the presence of the God in all of his glory that they are called out to reflect. Think about it this way. You ever like unknowingly just stumble upon, turn around, and all of a sudden you're face to face with a celebrity? You ever have that happen? Like, like it can be stunning, right? It's like you turn around like, whoa, wow, I didn't see you there, right? I had this happen once when I was a teenager. I'll age myself a little bit. I went to Washington, D.C. to watch a basketball game. The Georgetown Hoyas were playing the Syracuse Orange. And um, back when I was a teenager, uh, Georgetown had a center whose name was Patrick Ewing. Raise your hand if you've ever heard that name, Patrick Ewing. Okay, a lot of you, more of you than I thought. Uh, Patrick Ewing happens to be over seven feet tall. Back then, that was like a huge phenomenon. It seems like everybody is now, right? But back then, it was a huge phenomenon. And so as a teenager, I'm like, wow, this is so cool, and he's so tall, and it's so big. And so me and a group of teenagers, along with some other people, we went to this game in Washington, D.C. We're going to watch him. I'd seen him on TV. I'm like, that's kind of cool. He looks big. We got seats in the nosebleed section. And so we go to our seats, and we're looking down, and he's down there warming up. I'm like, wow, he kind of does look bigger in person. We got there so early, I'm like, you know, there's nobody down there. I said, I wonder if we can sneak down there and get a closer, closer view of Patrick Ewing and the Georgetown Hoyas. And so we did that. We went out the back and we went downstairs and we tried to find a door. And all of a sudden we walked through a door. And I remember walking through the door and we almost walked right on the court because I was almost face to face with Patrick Ewing. And I remember thinking to myself, I knew that old boy was tall. But when I stood face to face with him, that old boy was way taller than I thought he was. He was way bigger than I thought. I was like stunned. I was like startled. I was like, my goodness, I cannot believe. The picture in Revelation 4 is this. Church is face to face with God, and he's going to blow our mind. He's bigger than we ever imagined. He is grander than we ever dreamed. Here's why that's important. Because when you look at Revelation 4, it's all centered around a throne room, and the one sitting on the throne is God. And God, listen, I don't know what you think about it. God is not the big guy upstairs. God is not a heavenly homeboy. God is not what we have made him in our minds. When you read the description in Revelation 4, here's what it says. If you have your Bibles open, you can see it. He is sitting on a throne. He had the appearance of jasper and ruby. A rainbow encircled the throne of emerald. There's flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. What is it describing? A God who's in absolute control, a God whose glory is brilliant, a God whose grace and faithfulness never end, a God who is the judge of every man, a God who is too big for us to even explain. Look here. Why is that important? Like, I've heard this preached, and I've never heard anybody tell me, why is that important? I'm going to tell you why that's important. And I want you to write this down. Because the God, can we throw that up there? The God that we expect to see that day is the God we will worship this day. See, I don't know what God, those of you who say, I'm a Christ follower, I'm going to see God someday. If God is just like the big guy upstairs, yeah, me and God... He's the divine dude we're going to be hanging out together. Then all of a sudden, it's going to affect how you live this day. It's going to affect how you worship this day. You see, I think what he is describing for us is a God that we cannot undervalue. Can we just say it this way, that we can undervalue God? I was reading a story in some of my old notes. It fascinated me that makes this point. There's a story about a man in Washington. 
he stole a collection of rare coins. And the collection is worth $100,000. Everybody say that out loud with me. $100,000. Problem is he didn't know that's how much these coins were worth. The guy who stole the coins, he thought he just stole a couple rolls of quarters. And so what he set out to doing with his girlfriend was he went to the pizza joint and got some pizza. Spent these rare coins on pizza. He went to the movies and they went and watched a movie and he paid for the movie with these rare coins. Eventually somebody tipped the police off that these coins are being spent all over the place. Even there was a valuable coin, one that was more valuable than the others that was worth over $18,000, $18,000, and that coin was recovered at a nearby pizza joint. What's the point? The guy had in his pocket like $100,000, this incredible collection, and he was spending it like he had a couple dollars of coins in his pocket. You're saying, Dan, what's the point? You know what the point is? That we have a God of infinite worth infinite worth and is it not true don't answer out loud is it not true that we can with this God of infinite worth sometimes spend our life like he's worth a roll of quarters you see I think that's the point here Tim Keller says this and if you like writing stuff down this might be worth writing down worship is seeing what God is worth and giving him what he's worth that's worship it doesn't stop there but look at what it says in chapter 5. You have your Bibles open, verse 6. I really want you to do this hard work with me. He says, then I saw a lamb, that's interesting, looking as if it had been slain, killed, standing. That's weird. So it's imagery. A lamb looks like it's been killed. Now that lamb who was killed is standing. This slain lamb is standing. What is that pointing to? That's pointing to the cross. Remember that act four in the series, right? It's pointing to the cross. And what's it saying? It's saying this, that the one who died is alive. All through the book of Revelation, the one who died on the cross is alive. He shows up everywhere in the book of Revelation. The long story short of God has Jesus all over the final act. In fact, I would write this down. It is showing us and giving us a picture of the sacrificed lamb is now standing. Here's the picture for those of you who like this stuff, that you can read Revelation 5 on your own, but, but the story is this. I want to make something make sense to you. They have a scroll in their hands. Look up here. Imagine I had a scroll, and a scroll in their culture would have been sealed. And they're looking, and in this scroll, as you read Revelation 5, is all the rest of human history from that point on. And they're like, who is worthy to execute the rest of human history? Is anybody worthy, anybody able to do this? Anybody have the power to do it? Everybody have the credentials to do it? And they're looking around. Who's able to unwrap the scroll to execute the rest of the story? And they look, and there's Jesus, the one who was sacrificed as a lamb that is now standing. And they said, boom, he's the one. He's the one who died, was buried, rose again. He's the only one worthy to undo the scroll and execute the rest of what you see in the book of Revelation. That's what's going on here. Like Jesus is alive and he's executing the rest of human history. Clear to the book of Revelation chapter 19. You don't need to turn there. We'll throw it on the screen. But this is referring to Jesus. I saw heaven open. This is so cool. And there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. This is Jesus. 
The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. What is this pointing to? If you want to write this down, I would write it down. The one they executed is now executing judgment. That's what's going on. When Jesus first came, he came as a newborn babe. When he comes again, he's going to come as a warring warrior. The first time he came, he was virtually unnoticed by the crowds. Every eye will see him. The first time he came riding into town, he came riding into town with meekness on the back of a donkey. The next time he's going to come riding on the back of a white horse with power. The first time he came as a suffering servant. The second time he comes as a conquering king. The one who lived perfectly, they execute it like a criminal. The next time he comes, the one who is king will execute judgment. That's what this is pointing to. Which leads to the next part of this. This is so cool. This is, like, look at verse 16. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. What's that pointing to? The king who was killed is the king of kings. That's Jesus. This is the king that was promised to David in Act 3. This is the king that Herod was paranoid of at Bethlehem. This is the king who came riding into town. They said, Hosanna, he's the one. This is the king that they mocked and stuffed on his head a crown of thorns. He is the king of kings. This is pointing to the fact Jesus is alive. The one who is dead is alive. The church who's called out is caught up. And there's something else really interesting. You're back at chapter 5 with me. I want to keep reading there. Look at verse 9. They sang a new song saying, You're worthy to take the scroll to open its seals because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You've made them to be a kingdom and priest to serve our God, and they'll reign on the earth. Go a few pages over to Revelation 7. Do the hard work with me and go there, verse 9. It says, after this I looked, verse 9, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, and they were wearing white robes and were holding branches, palm branches in their hands, and they cried out, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. What is this pointing to? This is pointing to Act 3. This is simply saying this, that when it comes to the covenant, God did what he said he would do. You might be sitting there and stay with me. It's so powerful when this begins to come together that all of a sudden the church that's called out is caught up. The one who was on the cross that died is alive all through the end of this story. And when it comes to the covenant, what God said he would do, he did. You're saying, Dan, what do you mean? Remember what God promised to Abraham, Genesis 3. The Lord said to Abram, I'm going to make you a great nation. Everybody look here. Abram had no kids when he's saying this. Let that, be, let that come alive for you. God says, I'm going to make you a great nation. Abram's like, cool, I'd like one kid. No kids. All of a sudden, he says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. You're going to be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I'll curse. And all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. What's going on? At the end of the story, we see God keeps his word. All of a sudden, 
All peoples have been blessed. I would write it this way. God fulfills his promise through Israel that in this scene in heaven, there are people from every tribe, tongue, nation, every people group. Can I just say this? Heaven, heaven, listen close. Heaven is gonna be surprising to some of us. I'm pretty sure of that. I can tell you this, I know none of you would do this, but heaven's gonna be surprising to some people that like to post on social media who's in, who's out. Because in heaven, if I'm reading this right, heaven's gonna be people worshiping together. It's gonna be men and women worshiping together. It's gonna be young and old worshiping together. It's gonna be Republican and Democrat worshiping together. It's gonna be blue collar and white collar worshiping together. Jew, Gentile, black, white, Hispanic, Asian, Iranian, Iraqi, Egyptian, African, Browns fans and Steelers fans all worshiping together. Come on now. Heaven's gonna be different than some of those things. Some of us got this segregated view of heaven, right? Only the people in my political party, they got it right, right? I pray to God you're worshiping in heaven besides somebody from the other party, right? Heaven's going to be different than we think. Every tribe, tongue, like every nationality, represent it. But that's not all. We, we got to go down in the deep end of the pool for a minute. Everybody look here. Are you willing to do that with me? Just shake your head. I need some confidence. You willing? We're going to do it anyways, okay? So, I mean, I could care less if you want to, right? But we're going to do it. What's interesting is that he does not just fulfill his promise through Israel. He said, Abraham, I'm going to bless everybody through you. But listen, he fulfills his promise to Israel. Uh Uh-oh, here we go. We're going to go deep in a little bit. God told Abraham father of the Jewish people, he said, I'm going to bless those who bless you. I'm going to curse those who curse you. And from chapter 6 through chapter 19 of the book of Revelation, I'm going to put a chart up here so that you can see it, is this time known as the time of tribulation. It is seven years. It's the time of tribulation. During the tribulation, during this time, God's plan for Israel is unmistakable. Let me tell you what I mean. Israel, the Jewish people, have a history of turning their back on Jesus. Even when he showed up, he said he came to his own and they didn't receive him. And yet God's going to keep his promise to the Jewish people, to the nation of Israel. I personally don't think you can make sense of the tribulation without seeing this as part of God's unmistakable plan for his people Israel. During this time of tribulation, God's judgment on this earth is unprecedented. God's enemies are unrelenting. God's mercy and grace are undeniable. But God's plan for Israel is unmistakable. The beginning of this time, I'm not going to get lost in the weeds, though. The beginning of this time of tribulation, this seven years, it begins and it's marked by a world leader. Maybe you've heard this term. He's called the Antichrist. You've heard the term, right? So that's how it begins, and he makes this peace treaty with Israel only to break that peace treaty in the middle of those seven years. The time of tribulation is a time marked with incredible revival of the Jewish people and incredible persecution. When you get to Revelation chapter 7, you see God sealing, protecting 144,000 people from the nation of Israel, from the tribes of Israel. Why? Because there is a great Jewish revival that will take place and they serve as faithful, courageous, diligent witnesses. 
So the first part of the tribulation, there is Jewish revival and there's a return to worship. The second part, the Antichrist is gonna set up an image in the temple of the Jewish people, desecrate their temple, deny their ability to worship, declare war on them, and they are providentially and powerfully protected by the hand of a gracious God until the second coming of Jesus resets up his rule and reign. God keeps his word to bless the whole earth through Israel and he keeps his word to Israel. The end of the tribulation, God's victory is unstoppable. You read that in Revelation 19 and it leads to the next part of the story and that's this thing called the millennial kingdom, the second coming of Christ. Now listen, I need to talk to you about something because there's a lot of misconception about this. That after the time of tribulation, the long story short says Jesus is going to come and he's going to rule and reign for a thousand years. Pretty cool, right? The second coming of Jesus is different than the rapture. A lot of people mix those up, say it's the same thing. In fact, we have a little chart to show you the difference between the two. The rapture is sudden, unannounced, unpredictable. Second coming is announced. It's very predictable. The rapture comes before the judgment. He catches the church out. Second coming, he returns with judgment. He comes with the church. The rapture, he, we meet him in the air. The second coming, Jesus returns to the earth and establishes his kingdom. You can forget that. Here's what this points to. It points to this thousand-year reign of Jesus here where he keeps his word to the nation of Israel. Revelation 20. Look at this. Because this is where it starts getting really, really good, and then we're done. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the keys to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain, and he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil, or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. For this thousand years, Satan is bound. That's pretty good news. And they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Then look at verse 7. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and go to gather them for battle. And then there's this great battle. The number of them are like the sand on the seashore. They march across the breadth of the earth, surrounding the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire comes down from heaven, devours them. The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown, and they will be tormented day and night forever." This is the final crushing of the head of the serpent we learned about in the garden. That, that, that we know how the story ends, that the ruler of the demons, the god of this world, the tempter, the father of lies, the wicked one, the dragon, the adversary, Satan himself, is defeated. And then what happens? Chapter 21, verse 1. Look at this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. That's good news. There will be no more death, mourning, crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And he said, write this down, for these are words of that are trustworthy and true. I want you to write this down. This is talking about the creation. It's called recreation. And it's God saying, I'm gonna make everything new. God is gonna make everything new. He is recreating the garden in this beautiful city. Man walking with God, not hiding from God. Man enjoying relationship with each other. Man perfectly living into his purpose. Everybody look here a second. So important that I say what I'm gonna say because it created a lot of conversation after the first service. 
we have a very, very skewed understanding of heaven. Heaven, heaven is not us floating around on clouds playing harps the rest of our life. Can I just say that doesn't sound any fun at all? Can I get one amen in the room? Like, if that sounds fun to you, like, like, like we get this, this, I don't know where we get our idea of heaven. Like, honest to goodness, I think sometimes we know more about heaven from reading books by people who said, I died and went there and came back, and so we get enthralled with that, than we do by actually leaning in and saying, hey, God, you created it. What do you have to say about heaven? Like, like I did this, this, this wedding recently, and, and there was a song played at it, and I, you know, I, I wasn't really familiar with the song, and maybe you are, I don't know. It, it's sung by a, a guy named Keen Brown. I don't know, maybe he's a good guy, I don't know. And, but, but the song was going like this. I mean, the, the couple was married, and everybody's in love, and it's romantic and whatever. And, and the song said something like this. Like, I'm literally standing in the front as I'm listening to the words for the first time, like, you know, and, and they're, they're leaving, and it's like, hey, we're laying here together, and it's like, okay, that's kind of cool. They're married now, and that's kind of cool, and like, can't get any better than this, and people tell me heaven's better than this, and I think they're wrong. And I remember when that, I'm like, what? And he kept singing that over, and over. there's no way heaven can be any better than me laying here beside you. I'm like, man, I wanted to shout. They're walking down the aisle like, that's wrong. <laughs> I didn't, and I wanted your wedding. Like, like I don't know where, I don't, I don't know where in the world we got this idea of heaven. We're like floating around, playing on hearts. I don't know where, like that doesn't sound any fun. That's why we're like, I'm not sure I'm that excited. Like, like that's not what this is about. When you read this, this is the recreation, God making everything new. This is not simply us going to heaven. This is heaven coming to earth. The appetite we have in us for what is good and beautiful will be satisfied. This longing we have for peace is going to be realized. This thirst for purpose is something that's quenched. What is beautiful and good is realized without any pollution of sin, the distortion and deception. Heaven and this new heaven and this new earth is being invited into an adventure. That's what he invited Adam into. He invited him to an adventure. It's being, it's being mesmerized with majesty, secure and safety, enjoying and cultivating relationships. Like, I can't wait! Like, that's what it is. If it's sitting around playing, I'm like, that's no fun. That doesn't even seem good. It doesn't stop there. Because I can tell you're not that, you're not as excited as I am, but I hope you will in a second. Y'all are a little sleepy, I'm just going to tell you. Verse 1, chapter 22. I'm working hard up here. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city on each side of the river stood the tree of life kind of going back to the garden. It's like this incredible thing, right? Bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Look at verse three. Everybody read it out loud with me. No longer will write this down. This is talking about the curse and he's simply saying the curse will be reversed. Y'all had a bad Saturday because I don't know, I read that and I like want to scream. Because when I read that, I know you're not with me, you're not quite with me right now. I get it, I'm okay with that. When I read that, I, I write in my Bible the words no more. In big letters, no more what? Well, I'm kind of geeked this way because I think about this stuff, but that means no more. No more what? 
When I think about the curse being reversed, it means this. It means no more cancer, no more divorce, no more rejection, no more loneliness, no more depression. You with me? It means no more Band-Aids, tissue boxes, casts, crutches, wheelchairs. I can tell you're not that excited about it. No more pacemakers, x-rays, MRIs, CAT scans, radiation, chemotherapy, MS, IBS, or CPS. Can I get an amen on that one? No more bloated stomachs. No more bad breath. No more BO, amen. No more suicide bombers. No more school shootings. No more medical detectors, no more anxiety medication, no more middle of the night calls, no more crosses alongside of the road, no more coughs, colds, flu shots, or acne, even laryngitis, no more infertility, no more infidelity, no more dementia, no more dentures, no more inoperable tumors, no more insecurity, no more infomercials, no more miscarriages, no more child abuse, no more rape, no more tornado sirens, hurricane warnings, no more love handles or saddlebags, give me an amen. No more cottage cheese thighs, no more double chins, no more deodorant, no more deodorant stains, no more shaving, no more plucking, no more waxing, no more Rogaine, no more Medicare, senior care, daycare, yelling, fighting, bullying, traffic, road rage, no more walls, no more wars, no more racism, no more addiction, no more drama, no more hormones, no more craft diets, no more gossip, guilt, legalism, injustice, no more taxes, no more bills, no more politicians, no more elections, no more tears, no more pain, no more exhaustion, you're not with me, no more death, no more mourning, no more grieving, I have written no more. What a day that's going to be. All that's going to be really, really cool. And yet that's not the coolest thing about that day. It's not. That's, That's cool. But it's not the coolest thing. The coolest thing is if you keep reading, the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city. And his servants will serve him and they'll see his face. His name will be on their foreheads. And there'll be no more night. They won't need the light of a lamp, the light of the sun. Why? The Lord God's going to be right there with them. He's going to give them the light, and they'll reign forever and ever. Guys, listen close, and then we're done. What makes heaven heaven is Jesus will be there. That's what makes heaven heaven. We don't need a temple. Jesus is the temple. We don't need a light. Jesus is going to give the light. All of a sudden, the creature is in the presence of his creator, perfectly in sync with what we were created to do, enjoying relationships, seeing God face to face. What we follow by faith, we'll see by sight. The long story short that God gave us ends this way. Last verses of Revelation 22. It says, he who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. Everybody look here and I'm done. That's the long story short of God. Begs a question. We didn't just do the last six weeks so that we would have more knowledge. I hope you have more knowledge. What do we do with that? Some of you have asked me a very good question. 
you haven't been negative about it. You've just asked me a good question. You said, Dan, all through the series, you've used these C words, right? Creation, curse, covenant. And some of you have said, Dan, I'm kind of curious why you didn't use the C word Christ. thought we were Christians. Why isn't Christ one of the C words? That's a great question. Like some of you have asked that, it's a good question, and I'll tell you why I didn't use Christ. I purposefully, our team purposely chose not to use the word Christ. you know why? Because Christ is the word at creation. Christ is the serpent crusher in the garden. Christ is the fulfillment of the covenant. Christ is the head of the church. Christ is the lamb who was slain and is now standing victorious as the king of kings at the recreation. The whole long story short is about Christ. It's all about Christ. So, it begs the question, what do we do with this? I'll just talk to you for about three minutes here, okay? Don't look at your clocks, nobody move around, no emotional plea at the end of this. We're just going to just talk as people making some logical deduction about what do we do with this? Some of you are here and you're like, I'm not a Bible person, I'm not a Christ follower. Like, like that, that's not my thing. All I would ask you to do as a result of this series is to begin to consider what is your long story short. You have one. People don't spend time thinking about it. And then they call a guy like me when they die. And they want me to somehow make sense of their life, their family does, at their funeral. It's not meant to be morbid. It's just saying we all have a long story short that we make sense of life because it's going somewhere. That's kind of like taxes, you know, like happens. And whatever your long story short is, even if you would be like, I disagree with you, Dan, that's not mine. I get it. But whatever it is, where you think we came from, where we're going is going to tell you what you value and what your purpose and what the meaning of your life is. I think we just kind of go into oblivion and the dust, and it's over, and it's like, if that's what you, like, I hear you. Talk to people all the time. It's like, I get it. That's going to tell you kind of what you value and what your purpose is and what gives you meaning. Some of you would say, God's story isn't my long story short, and the reason it's not is because you've rejected a story you didn't know. And I just simply want to challenge you this way, to consider God's story. because he has a better story. And he's inviting you into his story. And for some of you that grew up in church, you need to hear what I'm gonna say right now because what God does is he invites us into his story. He does not want us to jam him into ours. Sometimes that's how we interact with God. Like God's in my back pocket. Kind of pull him out like, hey God, help me out. Boom, power, right? It's like, that's not the way it works. He says, I got this big story going on. I'm inviting you into it. And if some of you that, that be like, I'm not a Christ follower, but I didn't know this story, and you're like, man, how do I do this? Like today, like literally, in the quietness of your heart, you say, God, I believe you love me, and you've been chasing me clear to the cross, and the cross fixes what's broken, repairs what's ruined. And I want to say yes to Jesus as my Savior, because here's what I know. God's story would say this. Everybody look here. According to God's story, 
where you are at that day that I just described is totally dependent on decision you make this day. To accept or reject Jesus. Where you're at that day is totally dependent on the decision you make this day. It's not a scare tactic. I'm just saying that's the long story short of the Bible. I, I, I promised you I would tell you the truth when it comes to what the Bible teaches. And his invitation is like to say yes today. You can say yes today. A lot of you in the room, and, and, and I know this, I know a lot of your stories, you say, I, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christ follower. Like, like you're like, man, I'm all in, right? I just want to ask you a question and I'm going to pray and be done. For those of you who say I'm a Christ follower, can, can I ask you this question? Are you living and watching what's going on in life as though you know the end of the story? Are you living life kind of like my wife right now is watching The Amazing Race? I don't know, what if, and I don't know. A lot of paranoid Christians, man. A lot of purposeless Christians like, oh, no, I'm going to slink through. And if I, I don't know, I'm not, I'm not picking, like, you can even disagree with me, but if I'm reading this right, it's like, we can watch what's going on. It's like, I want to be really engaged in what's going on. But if I'm reading this right, as I engage in culture and conversation, those who said yes to Jesus ought to be the most hope-filled people on the planet. And I don't know if you're watching or not, but our planet is thirsty for hope right now. If I'm reading this right, like, like those who said yes to Jesus ought to be the most purposeful people on the planet. Like, there's a purpose. We have a purpose, and we know where this is going. And, and, and the purpose isn't to just eat, drink, live, get as much stuff as I can get for today, because I know there's more to this story. There's that day. And if I'm reading this right, the people who said yes to Jesus ought to be the most worshipful people on the planet, because we believe that we're going to stand face to face with a God who is way bigger than we ever dreamed. So God, we believe that. I believe that. But please forgive me for losing sight of that. And God, I pray that you would remind me, daily even, that your long story short begins in absolute goodness and it ends with this beauty beyond description. And in the middle of it, you're chasing us and pursuing us because you have a heart that desires to fix what's broken, repair what's ruined. And I pray for some of my friends in this room right now who've never said yes to Jesus, that this morning, there, right now, they would say, yes, Jesus, I want you to be my savior and the leader of my life. I want to jump into your story. God, thanks for giving us your story. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.